That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Taylor Twelman, and my dilemma is I always look like a frat boy. <laughs> that is amazing, and it is, unfortunately for you, so, so true. So for those of you listening who don't know what Taylor looks like, just picture the guy in an 80s movie who the girl's in love with, and then he treats her like garbage for the whole movie, and then finally at the end she realizes that her best friend was the one she should have been in love with all along. Yeah, that's him. He's like a, a catalog model for Eddie Bauer. He's the guy that your wife is secretly following on Instagram, and she says it's because she really likes his soccer opinions, but you definitely know better. He's a golf pro who hangs out in the clubhouse all day, but only during the women's scrambles right by the lemonade just in case they get thirsty. He totally looks like a frat guy. And the only way to fix that would be to get uglier. You would have to muss up your hair, Taylor. You'd have to wear baggy, ill-fitting clothes and stop whatever facial routine you've got going on. You'd have to skip the dentist for a couple years, get fat. I mean, let's be honest. You're not going to do any of that. You're a pretty TV talking head now. You can't let yourself go. So instead, you're just going to always have to look like a frat guy, but try not to be a frat guy. Sorry. The commish has spoken. This week's guest is Taylor Twellman. He's a soccer analyst for ESPN, a former MLS and national team soccer player. And we had a great conversation that started with us basically realizing that we haven't fought nearly enough about being from St. Louis and Chicago. So we got a little bit of that out of our system. Um, we also talked about some of the tough decisions he had early on, having to decide whether he wanted to go to college to play soccer and try to go professional or take the MLB offer that he got from the Kansas City Royals. Also, a decision to leave college to play professionally without finishing his time at Maryland. Um, we also talked about how being overseas for 9-11 uh, ended up provoking a fight with some of his East German teammates, and uh, he demanded his way out of that team, what he learned about himself and about what he wants from that experience. Uh, also, missing out on the World Cup and finding out on SportsCenter. And then we get into his foundation and the work that he's doing uh, on head injuries and concussions in sports. Uh, finally, why he wants to be Ryan Gosling and not Stifler. You'll understand after you listen. Here's my conversation with Taylor Twelman. That's what she said. So excited to have Taylor Twelman on the podcast, or as some people accidentally call him, Tyler Twelman or Tyler Twelman. Any number of things. He has another nickname or a middle name that starts with a T just to make things even more confusing. I believe it is Taylor Timothy Twelman, which... Uh, you know, I'm going to get it right. I'm going to get it right every time going forward because the first couple of times it was confusing for me. Uh, Taylor, before we even get started in your, your career and your journey and all the playing stuff, um, I was, I was looking into your background and discovered that you grew up in St. Louis and thought to myself, the amount of times that Taylor and I butt heads over anything just because we're both red asses, the fact that we've never really fought about our roots in St. Louis and Chicago and, and our rivalry is surprising to me. Am I forgetting some occasion upon which we have fought each other over our sports teams? No, no. And that's what's weird about the entire thing is the the amount of fun we've actually had arguing and butting <laughs> yeah. heads. We've never actually figured out that it's just simply St. Louis, Chicago. Yeah, it's remarkable. Maybe it's because your Cardinals haven't been good enough lately to, you know, feel like they're they're, you know, something we need to fight about. 
Well, it's hard because the Cards are celebrating the Stanley Cup with the St. Louis Blues, so it's oh, right. been difficult so for them to pay attention. Right, their right. first time ever winning, kind of like your Cubs did, and well, mm-hmm. what was that in ninety years? Uh, yeah, it was 108. Thank you, though, for underestimating oh, yeah, it. My uh, yeah, but I appreciate that because my Blackhawks needed a break after winning three in such a short amount of time. So it was nice for them to just take a little breather and let you guys finally have one, which so was nice. The truth of the story is that, is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, but when you grew up in Chicago and your roots are Chicago, were the Blackhawks Blues ever really rivals in your mind? Because they never were from us. We no. always lost to the Red Wings. Yeah, no, the Red Wings were the rival for everybody in that sort of division. Like, any, everybody in hockey, because the Red Wings were so dominant. Uh, no, I don't really remember it. It was only more recently when the Blues started to, yes. like, catch up and be good. And then, it, because of the natural St. Louis-Chicago divide, it, it carried over to that as well. It's, it's kind always, of like, it's always yeah. been the Cubs cards for, for you and I and for any of, any of our listeners on St. Louis-Chicago. It's always been the Cubs cards. And by the way, if anyone tries to put in the NFL, St. Louis Cardinals versus Chicago Bears. Well, the Cardinals weren't <laughs> around when I was in St. Louis. They never were, so that never right. really existed. It's just so antiquated. None of us have any actual experience with it. Yeah, like, like none of us are like, oh, wait, they, St. Louis has had how many NFL teams? Right. But well, like it, the Rams it, and Bears, that's not a rivalry either. So No, you know. it never was. It, 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 it is all – I just can't believe it because it. I figured it out. I think you and I were hosting – his and hers or some show, and, I, and you said something about, well, being from Chicago, and I was like, oh, that's that why we don't it. get along. <laughs> well, what I love is you mentioned it. The very first time we met, we were both filling in for the uh, the dearly departed uh, show, We need to his bring that show back, Sarah. We do. That was a good show, and uh, we crushed it because I realized within – about 10 minutes of the first show that we're the same and, yes. and neither of us is used to somebody giving us the shit that we're your new, normally giving someone else. Yep. Normally there's like the yep. person you play off of that's getting all the shit and, and taking it and, and creating it into something else. You and I were just giving it back and forth. There was no receiving of the shit. There was no one there to take it. Um, which was, uh, which was both magical and uh, very confrontational at the all listeners times. Listeners need to, honestly, we should try to find the archive. Cause if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> you and I had Eric Dickerson on, correct? I think so. We did. If we brought up, we brought up some kind of picture, and it was him in the fur coat, something of that nature. And I don't think either of us listened to each other, giving him <laughs> subtle, subtle shtick. But uh, the producer in our ear, dying laughing. I, honestly, it's one of my top five favorite moments because I had no idea what to expect. Obviously, hosting a show like that. You're, it's kind of a free-for-all, and you were leading the charge, and I was just kind of riding your coattails. But that was I remember that segment going, oh, okay, we just did that. All right. Yeah. I'm going to try to find I think it, it was the D segment, which where you and I kind of lost it. Yeah, well, also, and this may or may not actually make it to air, but I would always, when we were getting ready for that part of the segment, they would say, let's put it in the D's, and I would say, D's nuts, every time, because I'm a child, and I can't, I can't be contained. Um, so let's get to St. Louis, and growing up in St. Louis, you were, um, a superstar at every single sport, and, um, as a, as a young, young kid, Having the family that you do, your your father and uncles all played professional soccer. Your brother played soccer. Your grandfather was in the major leagues for baseball. Your uncle is a professional golfer. I mean, this is a sporty family. So from a very, very young age, is it just you're putting, you know, a ball, a club, a stick, or whatever in your hand at all yeah. times? 
Yeah, it, it, it was, Sarah. And listen, even my sister was, uh, you know, full ride at St. Louis University, University of Richmond, then she transferred to St. Louis University, played four years uh, soccer as well. It, it's I, I joke around with people because it is weird. You know, we all love to kind of tell each tell everyone about what we did, but as if I had any choice, Sarah. Like, in all seriousness, <laughs> when you grow up, and in your in your bedroom as a kid, now granted, I'm the oldest of three, so I went to my dad's trainings and practices and games, and I was old enough to remember some of that. But when you grew up, there's a picture next to my bed. Uh, it was like fourth or fifth grade. My grandfather, who just won a World Series with Joe DiMaggio and the Yankees, hmm. my father, picture next to him, getting tackled, or he, obviously not him getting tackled, he was tackling Pelé, like, like Sarah, <laughs> with all due respect, my mom and dad were very, they, they stressed school, don't get me wrong, and we went to very good high schools and, and grade schools, and we, and we had to study and all that, but if I was sitting at the Thanksgiving table at 18 years old, and, and honestly said, you know what, I think I'm going to become an accountant. <laughs> like, it, it, it just never... And I am the definition. That's part of the reason why I'm easy to hate, and it wasn't my by choice, but it, it, it's in my DNA. I am the definition of it was in God's plan to make sure that there was a ball or a club or a bat or whatever it is, and it went through my t- entire family. My dad, and he had three brothers uh, that played something professional. My grandfather, who won two World Series, like I said, and my my uncle was on the PGA Tour for 20-some-odd years. So it, it just it was in the DNA. If I would have said I was an accountant, I, I'd probably be parentless right now. <laughs> it, without naming any names, is there anyone in your family that is not athletic and therefore had to do something other than sports or maybe was forced into it and didn't feel as much like it was the way it was meant to be, but rather this oppressive expectation that, that haunted them for most of their childhood. It's honestly a great, it's Sarah, it's a, it's a great, I think I had one uncle that didn't want to play any sports on my dad's side. And then I had another uncle that was on the baseball golfing side, my mom's side. And he played college soccer as a goalie, but he was actually an unbelievable golfer. But he said, you know what? I kind of want to party and have fun. So, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You know, it's a real good question. I think it, the next generation, that is where it got interesting, where a lot of my cousins on my on the Twelman side didn't really play or didn't want to play or tried to play, whatever that may be. But it just kind of was what all of us wanted to do and kind of did. It, honestly, Sarah, I never thought about it until I was done playing. Then I was like, oh, wow, no wonder why a lot of people are just like, I God, I hate Taylor. <laughs> Well, you also, I presume, based on who you are now and based on the fact that you were successful at football and basketball and soccer and baseball and all those things, you actually were offered a contract by the Royals and decided to instead play soccer at Maryland, that you probably had a bit of swagger to you. Would it it be safe to say that from a young age you were good at those things and that translated into not necessarily being a jerk about it, but being able to walk around with it with an incredible oh, confidence. On, sir, sir, you're being the most – that is the most <laughs> polite way I've ever heard anyone say it. Absolutely. Uh, was it – was it – no, because put it this way. If I came home with that swagger slash cockiness, my dad – my mom and my mom more in particular, and who, by the way, may be the best athlete in my family, but Title IX wasn't around. Yeah. So she didn't have a choice, right? So – but she was more competitive than anyone. But if I tried to show up an opponent, if I tried to 
walk around with that swagger that you talk about. Listen, I was reminded time and time again, which is part of the reason why you and I kind of get along, because there is a little bit of an edge to that. Yeah. Um, but yes, absolutely. There was, a, you know, fifth grade yearbook, sixth grade yearbook. Hey, what are you going to do? And I was like, what do you mean I'm going to do? I'm going to play a pro sport. Like, it just... It, yeah, it absolutely, no doubt about it, and and I was very self aware of it as well. It's not one of those things where I'm like, no, I'm not that guy. No, I am. <laughs> I just need to make sure I live up to it. Time for a quick break, and then more. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Women of Marvel is the place to hear from women making waves in comics, pop culture, entertainment, and beyond. This official Marvel podcast is hosted by Marvel Sana Bonnet and Judy Stevens, who have 25 years of working at Marvel between them. They chat with people from all backgrounds who have inspiring stories to tell. Sana and Judy welcome guests from every part of the Marvel Universe, including Rachel McAdams, Celia Keenan-Bolger, and Evangeline Lilly. You can find Women of Marvel every other Thursday, wherever you listen to podcasts. That's what she said. Did you get into school at all, or were you the kind of person that tried to skate by on just the sports stuff? No, Sarah, I love school. I love the competitive. It was about sixth, seventh grade when I found out that school was my ticket in order to be able to do other things. And the other aspect of that was injuries were a part of my family. You know, my brother's career ended up, you know, I didn't know this at the time in sixth grade, but injuries were always part of whether it was my dad's career. It ended. You needed to have something to fall back on. So, yeah, I was I was an A student. Sarah, it wasn't like, you know, 4.0, did the whole thing, worked hard. But the one of the sacrifices that I, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I regret, but I didn't go out a lot. I didn't party a lot. Right. I didn't do that aspect, right? So the one thing I gave up in order to do school and, and sports was the going out and social aspect because I was playing. Think of this in the fall. Friday night was a football game. Saturday night was a soccer game. I didn't have any time, Yeah. right? So... Um, school was 100% a huge part of the equation, but as my life shows you that once I was offered the ticket to go and make sure my school was paid for, I I took that chance immediately. Yeah. So you end up at university of Maryland. How did you decide between soccer and baseball instead of Uh, going with the Royals? Well, (laughs) well, you being a Cubs fan and me being a Cards fan, it's not like the Royals are like, Oh yes, my dream franchise. Right, but you could have ended up with the Cardinals or anywhere else once you were in the system, right? If you if the if being a baseball yes. player had been your dream, you take whatever entry point, right? Yeah, uh, Sarah. Here's the here's the the truth of the matter is I never gave baseball full shot. Baseball was the second sport, and one summer I decided to not play for any of the U.S. national teams in soccer wise and not play any golf. I said, you know what, I'm gonna commit myself to baseball. Well. Immediately after that, I had an like an invite from the Royals, Cardinals, and Mets, and I did a private workout, and all three right away said, "Listen, here's what we're thinking." And Sarah, I, it was as if <laughs> it was as if it was like Charlie Brown, like I didn't hear a single thing they said because all I heard was, "You would not go to college, you'd give up soccer," and I was like, "Well, well huh?" Like yeah. it didn't take me that long. Now it didn't matter the money, honestly. Because we never got to that point. And then the Royals got to the point of saying, well, what's the number for you to give up soccer? And I just remember looking at my dad that day, that day, that night, and saying, wait, Pops, I, am I really going to say this is – no, I, I think I need to see this. I never picked up a baseball glove again. I go to huh. Maryland on a baseball scholarship, 
freshman year of at Maryland soccer is in the fall. I'm lifting weights for baseball. I'm playing catch, doing all those little things you need to do to stay in shape. But I was freshman uh, player of the year. I was All-American. And then I went to the Under-20 World Cup, scored four goals, became the first American to win bronze boot. I never – and then I turned pro. So, Sarah, it was weird. It was almost as if that summer day in July of uh, – I think it was 97. It was as if indirectly I said, oh, no, I'm going to give up baseball now, not knowing that I would, you know, 18 months down the road, if that makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it, that that's likely because of your family, right? Your, your family's ties to the game of soccer. Did you feel significantly better at the game of soccer than baseball? Or was it simply that, oh, this is what I love because this is what I grew up with? Because most would argue that in the States, at least, the path for baseball would feel like it was more monetarily sound and like it was the bigger dream. Absolutely, yes. And, and I'm glad you bring it up because if you're interviewing me as an 18-year-old in 2019, the money's actually more on the soccer side because you're going to make more money quicker as a young prospect in that stage than you are to go play single-A, rookie ball, double-A, and all that, no matter what your signing bonus is. Look at Christian Pulisic, for example, just signed. You know, he's going to make $10 million a year, and he just sold for $85 million. So, Sarah, that's a, I knew soccer, I could get to the pros quicker. Baseball, I had never lifted a weight. I had never done anything. I just played shortstop, batted first or second, and did that, and played out of natural ability. And they said, listen, you're going to go and start in rookie ball. You're going to go single A. And I just I didn't know if I was up for that grind, if that makes yeah. sense. And I'm not saying I'm taking the easy out, but I just knew in my heart that if I went to Maryland my freshman year and scored a ton of goals, which I did, that it was going to be quicker and sooner. I didn't know – what way it would go, but I just knew I'd be on the first team playing somewhere at a high level as opposed to living with four guys in a two-bedroom apartment in the middle of America trying to make it work where there's six or seven other teams in your within your organization trying to do it. I just knew it was going to be a longer road. So you get to Maryland, and with this idea in mind that you could go pro or that if you played well enough it would lead to a career – when you got there, was it just soccer all the time? What, what about academics? What about social life? How did you how did you treat that? Was it almost like a minor leagues for you? Well, it was weird. No, I, I went there saying I, I want to graduate in three years just in case. So I actually took, which was idiotic. I mean, you're talking about your first time away from your parents. And I decided to take 18 credits fall semester during soccer season. Like, <laughs> Sarah, who does? Like, what? And, and by the way, great uh I think it was an Instagram post by you of asking <laughs> of asking ideas on how to like not to become a better morning person. You wrote this long soliloquy about like, oh, I'm trying to do this basically it meant I hate waking up in the morning and trying to do work. <laughs> Am I right? That's yes. pretty much what you wrote. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I go to Maryland, and they're like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I'm going to graduate in three years. I'm going to play baseball in the spring and soccer. And they're like, whoa, well, baseball, you travel 40 days of the year, you know, of the semester. So you, can only, you should only take 12 credits. Anyway, so I'm like, perfect. I'll do 18 in the fall, and <laughs> then I'll do two, three in the winter. So I went in guns blazing, and meanwhile, I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. I, here I am at University of Maryland. You know, Fraternity Row is a fun spot. You've got Bentleys. You've got all the things that our good man Scott Van Pelt has brought great attention to. And I'm sitting there taking 18 credits. Like, what a loser. <laughs> like, a total loser. So that's what it was. Honestly, Sarah, my first semester was 
a grind. I did that. I'd wake up 6 a.m., go to two classes, go do fall baseball, and do the little workouts I can do, um, and then basically go to two classes and then go to soccer practice and play two games a week. Like, it just wasn't – and it was great because my roommates at the time – were, if you remember, the Maryland team of 98, Steve Francis, Obina Akizi, and I want to say LaRon Prophet, but I think he was on the next door. But they put me, I was a soccer player away from soccer, mm. right, for a little bit. And then I was like, no, 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 I can't do this. So then I got put in with uh, my good roommate from the national teams and all that, Nick Downing. So make a long story short, it was uh, it was a rude awakening that first semester because I was like, I what am I doing? Like, I thought college was fun. <laughs> uh, well, you weren't there for very long. You were there for two seasons, and then you got the opportunity to play professional uh, soccer in Germany. How difficult was that decision, if difficult at all? Uh, that's a good one. That's a, it's, um, it, it wasn't difficult the moment I, I went to the Under-20 World Cup, won the bronze boot, and then said, wait a minute, now I've got three or four European club opportunities. And that was different. Now, the difficult part was, and it actually hurt me uh, later on in my career, is I said no to Major League Soccer. And Major League Soccer was, quite frankly, pissed. And they made me an example of that later when I came back after September 11th. But it wasn't that difficult of, a, uh, of an answer for me because when I saw what I did on the international stage, Sarah, you kind of are it, – it's weird. It's not – you're kind of convinced, oh, actually, I can do this. Like, right. you and I are taping this podcast on July 8th. Matthew Wolf, who just left Oklahoma State, who won the PGA Tour event this past weekend, his interview was eerily similar to me, to something I did a long time ago, where you're like, it, it, your play almost convinces you, oh, I actually kind of, my intuition was correct. So when Germany came knocking, I was like, yeah, I, I need to go. Hmm. So what was that experience like in Germany, maybe beyond just the soccer, but being a, a oh. young man and being a professional now in a sport, but also in a completely different country? So I do 18 credits my first semester in college. Then I go to a Munich, Germany uh, situation where you can drink whatever age you are. You can have <laughs> as much fun as you want. There's no real rules. You're in a professional environment, but I'm also on an American where the United States men just were the worst team in the 1998 World Cup. So it was almost like a laughing stock. Um, Sarah, I grew up uh, more than any part of my life in Germany uh, because I was it was sink or swim. And sometimes I, I, I went to the bottom, you know, not having a real – you went from a scheduled like I had with school and everything to then just becoming a pro athlete – it was weird, Sarah. It actually was a weird time for me because I wasn't in school. I wasn't using my brain, so to speak. I just literally trained twice a day and then had no rules, had no one looking over me. Hey, yeah, you want to go out and train the next day? And when you're 18, 19, Sarah, you can do right. a lot of things that you can't do now. Mm-hmm. So it just was one of those things. But what changed my life was September 11th. Um, Sarah, the listeners will... You know, a lot. Some of our listeners may may not even been old enough to remember September 11th, but I was pulling into the training facility, and I walked in. And usually, you have people on the training fields. You have the we have a restaurant on on campus where we were in Munich. No one was outside to go in, and everyone's in front of the TV. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what I was watching. I thought it was a movie. 
So I sat there, looked at it, watched it, let it sink in, then realized it was New York. I had an aunt and uncle that were traveling back and forth from New York. I sent a text, which, by the way, in nineteen, you know, in 2001, texting in America was very difficult and still a problem. So I was still, so I had to call, call. I find out my aunt and uncle are fine. I come back to the locker room. There's two Eastern European players, and they're snickering. And in their broken German, they're saying, we deserved it. The United States deserved it. Now, I don't, full disclosure and full transparency, I don't really remember what happened. I really don't. But all I remember is I, there was an altercation in the locker room, not a fist fight, but I got, I got a, extremely upset, kind of blacked out a little bit to a point where I didn't know. I went up to the, the general manager and the president's office. The owner was not there. And he, he basically, the whole thing was that they were going to tell everyone internally that I was fined and suspended. He wasn't going to fine and suspend me because he looked me in the eye and said, I completely understand what's going on, and I understand your feeling. Just take a couple days. During those two days, though, I started to reach out to other Americans in German, Steve Terundolo, Corey Gibbs, a bunch of guys that were playing over there. That weekend, Sarah, we had, we had a game. We were the only team, listen to this, the only team in Western Europe that did not wear black, black armbands hmm. for September 11th. And that I, I became a man that day in a weird way, and the reason why I say that is because I I was done. Our owner was East German, our coach was East German. Make of that what you will, but I was like, no, 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 I, life's too short. I'm not doing this. So over the next two and a half, three months, I went straight in there and said, I'm out. Right. So you you guys can do what you want, but there's a club in Germany and there's a club in Kaiserslautern which has 30,000 American soldiers living in a nearby town. And I said, I want to play for that team. They want me to play for them. They also, Sarah, which I thought was kind of interesting, they tried to get another American, Steve Terundolo, to go there. So it was almost like after September 11th, that club team was like, no, let's reunite this town. But long story short, my club was like, no, you're not going anywhere in Germany. The only place you can go is back home, and that's how I ended up in New England. Was there any regret for you, or when you look back, do you say that was that was the right decision for me? No, it, no regret whatsoever, and I don't have a lot of regrets. Obviously, we all sit there, and you could say, well, what if something happens? I know when people say you don't have any regrets, it's a lie. I, regrets, no, because I, I was living life to the fullest, and I, and I make decisions that at the time feel like it's best for me. Uh, no, Sarah, honestly, I don't think I'm talking to you if I don't make that choice. And yeah. what I mean by that is I just... I grew 20, 20 years old making a massive decision like that out of what you felt in your heart and not your brain. Sarah, that was a massive moment for me as a person, um, and, and I don't regret that. Now, I will have multiple soccer people say, listen, dude, you were on the verge of this, this, or this, and, and I, I, none of that bothers me. None of that bothers me because I saw my family. My dad got to see me play because every game was on tv my mom did i was in touch with them i saw them more it just it was at the time and i think it was the right decision and like i said i i don't know if you and i are you know doing stuff at espn together or having this conversation if i don't make that decision so no regrets on that whatsoever did you ever have any conversations with the teammate or two that made the crack because you were around for another what couple months after that yeah 
Yeah, it was it was interesting. I actually, I one of the players that we, we had hard words for. He was um, from the old Yugoslavian days, and he had a real hard. And I, I reached. I said, "Let's go to." I want to know why you said that. I want right. to know. And then he he lost a cousin that in a war where we were involved in, and it just opened your eye. Sarah, I, I tell so many people, it opened my eyes to so many things about our country. And when you're over there, their CNN's a lot different than our CNN. And so I just, I'm glad I did that. I have multiple conversations. I'm actually still, I stay in touch with three of my old teammates. Um, and that says a lot to me because all three of those guys at the time, not not had my back, but also knew what it meant to me. And now, you know, the fact that we're still staying in touch and still communicate says it all for me. Back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain in just a minute. Do you want to attend the exclusive 10th annual ESPNW Women in Sports Summit at the resort at Pelican Hill in Newport Beach, California? If you do, go to ebay.com slash ESPN to bid on an opportunity to experience a summit that brings together leaders in sports, business, and entertainment for an inspiring two-day program focused on driving change and opportunity for women in sports. This experience gets you and a guest the chance to take two spots to attend the ESPNW Women in Sports Summit at the resort at Pelican Hill in Newport Beach, California, October 21st to 23rd, 2019. You get a special meet and greet with me, Julie Foudy, and Sage Deal. You get resort lodging for two nights, three days, attend all Summit-sponsored events and activities, and you get all your meals and Summit receptions throughout the event. For more information, go to ebay.com slash ESPN. All proceeds benefit the V Foundation for Cancer Research. In the fight against cancer, we'll never give up. That's what she said. So you come back to the States to play for MLS, and as you mentioned before, it was not your first option. You had spurned them before. How difficult was it? Uh, You weren't exactly tucking your tail. You were coming back as a successful player, but you were coming to play for something and and asking, okay, now now I want to be here. Welcome me. What was that like? Uh, well, Sarah, it was real simple. They handed me a piece of paper and said, you'll make $24,000. No bonuses whatsoever. <laughs> so I was like, sure, no problem. I'll do that. This um, was after you were drafted? Oh, yeah. And, well, that's the other part. I am the only professional athlete, professional soccer player to actually have to go to the draft. <laughs> so, so I had to go back to the college draft, having already been a pro. Like, that was like, I was like, okay. So, listen, talk about it humiliating, uh, talk about humbling, whatever you want it is. So I showed up there, did the combine, um, and afterwards they said, yeah, well, first off, to just give you, four teams tried to sign me. The league said, uh-uh. Four teams tried to sign me at either 150 to 250 grand a year. So, Sarah, it wasn't as if when I initially said I was coming back that I didn't have those options. But when it kept coming back and back and back, the league was like, no, screw you. This isn't happening. Now, keep in mind, this is time when the league was at the precipice of either falling off the cliff. They just lost the franchises in Miami and Tampa. And the World Cup before twenty, you know, 2002. So you're looking at a huge impact of what happened. And I looked at it and said, okay, I'm still going to do it. So I signed for $24,000 a year um, and moved to Boston and said, you know what? I'm, at least I know in my heart this is what I wanted to do. And, Sarah, the rest is history. From the moment I played for the Revs, I scored goals. We won, except in the final, uh, as I'm the Jim Kelly of Major League Soccer. But we won. 
And so it was a great. So for me, looking back on it, it was just a bump in the road, but it obviously was the right decision for me. So, what, what did they have? Were they allowed to do that to you in terms of denying the opportunity for those larger contracts and forcing a, a, a you know rookie sort of yeah. draft for player scale? Yeah, they well for your listeners, it's a single entity in the league, you know. So, and that's you know, 2019, we're taping this interview and having this conversation. I think in 2020, we may there may be uh, better rules and whatnot, but it's still to this day, it's a single entity where the the league, they're all franchises, and the league owns the players. So at that time, uh, no. Now, now it would be a little different because the power of social media, right, Sarah? Like, think if I, if I on social media right now told that story, the league would go, okay, hold on. Right. Let's figure this out, right? It just right. wouldn't happen. We're going to get killed here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It just wouldn't happen. But in 2002, there was, it didn't matter. They, they didn't care. And, and the reality was I had to suck it up or go back to 1860 Munich because they still own my, you know, I still had 18 months left on my deal. And I said, you know what, I'm out. I'm going to give this a go, and luckily it worked out. So you're playing for the New England Revolution. You scored more goals at the time in MLS than any other player, youngest to score 100 in 2009 at, at the age of 29. You're, uh, I believe, still New England's all-time leading goal scorer, right? Yeah, yeah uh, that's to fault of them, not mine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fortunately. <laughs> um, five-time All-Star, league MVP in 2005. At the time, was that peak soccer for you were there big goals on the national team i know you you earned 30 caps for the national team did you have dreams of being you know um a star on the international level yeah it just it just never happened the coach at the time was bruce arena um and he was at university of virginia and i went to university of maryland um and that's a rivalry there and i'm not saying that's part of what bruce but bruce never looked at me as being the guy. You had Brian McBride, you had Landon Donovan, and and then we had a bunch of us on the outside looking in. So I time and time, I, I got called into everything, uh, Sarah. I, but I, as I said, I was probably top five all-time best warm-up players, best warm-ups at halftime. I just I didn't play a lot. It is what it is. It's part of the national team, but you play for the national team. You play for your country. You wear red, white, and blue, and you put your ego to uh, to the side because that's what it is. It's about your country. Um, yeah, I did. Obviously, had massive aspirations, and, and some people in soccer will tell you that I didn't get a fair shot, and some people say eh, it just wasn't meant to be. The hard part is my concussion in 2008 ended my career. It changed my life. But soccer-wise, that took me out of the 2010 World Cup. And that's one of the tournaments that I think um, where you look at Bob Bradley and the way he formed that roster, I would have had a huge impact on that roster. Yeah. Is it? Is it? Um, I think any of us who have been athletes in the past, we have – one or two things that stand out to us as our biggest regret, either an opportunity in a match or a game or a meet where we didn't perform the way we'd hoped or um, some something that stands out still as like, oh, that's the, that's the thing that I could have had or done. Is it for you what you could have done in Europe, if not for 9-11 and how that happened? Is it, is it opportunities at the international it's level? The is, yeah. Sarah, it's a great it's, – it's a real question, and it's one that um, I have no problem – I, I'm MVP of Major League Soccer in 2005. 2006, the six game, five games before the World Cup, I am the leading goal scorer, and Bruce Arena says you're not going to the 2006 World Cup. Oh. And Sarah, think of this. I had to find out 
on SportsCenter. So oh, the thirty-man roster, right? Six of the replacements got emails and phone calls. I was the only one that didn't. And mm-hmm. on the SportsCenter segment, if I'm not mistaken, it was our, our good man Stu Scott. I, I actually think Stuart Scott asked Bruce Arena, so there's no room for MVP of your domestic league, and Bruce never answered the question. Mm. So it was that will always go down as one of those uh, moments. Um, but 24 hours after the Sports Center segment, my grandfather who won two World Series dies. Mm. So it put it all for me. I don't. It's like, sir, you. I know you probably have this. Like, are there a few things in life for you where you didn't get anything, but you knew you gave it 100%. You knew yeah. you were successful at it. It just wasn't in the cards for you, and you kind of, it's kind of easier to take. It's easier if you know that you literally did everything you could, but there's a difference for, for instance, for a track athlete because it's numbers. And that's yeah. one of the reasons I loved it because my yep. my high school basketball situation was, was jacked up. And it wasn't necessarily that the best players were going to get recruited the best or played the best because of what was going on with the drama. In track, there's no option. If you do the best, you get the best number, places recruit you, coaches use you, etc. So I, I don't know how I would feel if I could point to a person who stood in my way instead of my own inabilities. Sarah, that's such a great, great analogy that nobody, that very few people understand. That's part of the reason why I am a degenerate golfer. <laughs> like the part of golf for me that I love is no, how'd you play? Like it's you and the golf course. It doesn't matter what anyone else does. So when I look back on it, I, I honestly, Bruce and I, I, I've had to cover him now for ten years here at ESPN. Like it's, I, I emailed him about six weeks after the World Cup because he had shingles. He was sick. Yeah. Um, the assistant coach at the time died of a heart attack. Like there was just more things for me. But I, if I had gone to bed, Sarah, and not scored goals in 2006 after being MVP, then I internally would have a small part of me be like, Taylor, you didn't do it. Right. But the reality is, Sarah, I did. I had four goals and four assists in three games before he named the roster. Like, there's nothing else I could have done. So then it's, like, exhausting if I'm going to still sit there and say, eh, I'm over it. I, I just think me telling the story kind of helps people. But honestly, when people say, I can't believe you didn't go, I'm like, yeah, but my grandpa died literally 24 hours afterward. It put it all in perspective real quick for me. I'm kind of lucky in a weird way, and I hate saying that because he's probably looking down on me going, Dude, you're an ass. But the truth is, <laughs> the truth is, he kind of took one for the team, and I appreciated it. Um, so you you had a series of neck injuries and concussions um, during your MLS play. Uh would you say that it was obvious to you as your career sort of slowed down that the injuries were preventing you from being the player that you needed to be to stay in the sport? Was it more of a, all of a sudden realization, like, I can't do this anymore? How did the injuries eventually take you out of the sport? Oh, man. Uh, how long do we have? This has been a great <laughs> con- I feel like this has been a great conversation for myself. Sarah, I, I tell people all the time the greatest gift that I've ever been given is the, and I hate saying it, but it's true, is that concussion in August 30th, 2008. And so David Beckham and the LA Galaxy were in town, and there was 40-some-odd thousand people there. Obviously, you know, any female in my family went to the game. So everyone was looking forward to the game. Great crowd. I get punched in the face. I play the rest of the game. Uh, the second half of that game, I thought I scored a goal, Sarah, and I missed it by five feet, six feet. Mm. 
and started celebrating. I was already having double vision. Mm. Um, the next six to seven weeks, I played games. Uh, it changed my life. It didn't. It, 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 we can talk about ending my career. That's fine. It changed my life. I, st- I have not worked out for the last 10 years. I can't. I have limitations that will always be there. And yet, there was a reason why it had to be me. Because at that time, former MVP of Major League Soccer, at your peak, blonde hair, blue eyes, American, uh, can speak well. Think about it, Sarah. Like, you can't get a better example at that time to then be the showcase of head injuries. And we didn't know what our head injuries are as we do in 2019. But think of this. As I scored that goal, my next-door neighbor is Junior Seau. I become best friends with Junior Sale. We go to dinner every Monday, Tuesday night, you know, depending on his schedule. And we sat there, and we ended up having conversations. And I, I told this story on the on the thirty for thirty. We literally had conversations about his head injury starting at age fifteen. I didn't realize at the time he was asking for help. So right. when I say that story and I tell you my story, like I was on the verge of signing an eight million dollar deal in England, the day. Uh, the month before I get punched in the face, that those negotiations start with the crafts. It was meant to be. It was meant for me to be that person. Now, granted, Sarah, not to get into it, but I had a choice last year. Either I sue the league or I don't. And I chose not to because I think I'll have a greater impact being proactive with education and awareness. I started a foundation where last year we had – I think it was 4.3 million kids within U.S. soccer take my pledge that I wrote about education and awareness. I just, I had a real decision to make, and, and granted, maybe it's against the grain, because who knows what that money would have been, but I think I'll have a greater impact. So anyways, that's why I say it's the greatest gift ever, because I always thought I would have been remembered in doing podcasts with the Sarah Spains of the world about scoring goals. The reality is, I'm going to be remembered, and I am being remembered right now, for concussions, because I am literally going to make sure things change. And some people, particularly in the NFL world, can't stand me. But the reality is I'm saying the truth. And, Sarah, the other aspect of this that's absolutely crazy is NFL players are calling me. That's a soccer guy. Someone that played right. in MLS, like, who cares? Because they know I don't have any skin in the game. I care about the athlete. Right. It's just it's it's remarkable when you ask me like did I know about that injury and whatnot? No, I had no idea. Like I had no idea that on July eighth, two thousand nineteen I'd still have a headache and still be talking about it with Sarah Spain, but the reality is it I am. Right. Um, a couple of follow ups there. Um you said that you were sort of lucky in the sense of being you know, not being picked for the World Cup team and your grandfather passing away. You said it was a gift to have this injury. How do you explain your perspective on things like that? I find that a lot of successful people are able to, like one of the toughest questions on my podcast all, every time is, what's your biggest failure? Because I'm speaking to incredibly successful people and they yeah, don't internalize those things. They literally, they've, they've moved on from every time things haven't worked out and spun it into a positive, which is part of the reason I think they've found success. So your perspective on looking at these things do you think that it came over time? Would you be oh, honest yeah. in saying, oh, I always felt this was a gift or I always felt this was lucky? <laughs> um, or how do you find the perspective? Because some people dwell on things like that for the rest of their lives. They say, I was given a raw deal. I'm never going to succeed because this person did me wrong instead of being able to find a way to turn it into a positive. 
Uh, Sarah, I can promise the listeners and you that when I was taking six Oxycontin a night and drinking a handle of vodka, one the final time I ever did that, I, I didn't look at this as a gift. So it, it's mm. been over time, and it's had to take me. But in order to – everyone has failures, and that's the one thing I've – and my father – used to always say that to me. He goes, Taylor, everyone has, everyone, he used to say a couple things that say that. There's always going to be someone that makes more money than you. And everyone has failures. They're just at different levels. But how you, adversity reveals character. It doesn't build character. And I've always believed that. And in order to do so, sir, you've got to go through the mud. I know you could sit here for 35, 40 minutes or five hours and talk about your trials and tribulations. We all have it. It's what you do with it. But to answer your question, no, this wasn't overnight. It's not like I woke up with vertigo and dizziness and not being able to actually watch television or even look at my cell phone or do anything. That was four or five years ago. That wasn't right after the World Cup. So it's... Yeah, it's one of those things you have to you have to look at it, but there is something to everything. And for me, nobody, and I mean nobody, was talking about concussions. So when I get my concussion, and then literally six months later, I'm on, I'm sorry, 18 months later is what the time frame was, and I'm meeting with Bob Lee about doing something on outside the lines. Sir, you tell me that wasn't meant to be. That, I'm right. sorry, it just was. And that's when I started to take this into a positive. I said, no, I think the world and the universe and the energy in this world said, no, no, he can handle it. So, but it, if I'm, I'm lying to you, if I said it's overnight it, and listen, I can wake up tomorrow and I'll shoot you a text and say, I hate, I hate my life. I hate the fact that I can't work out or do anything normal that I used to be able to do. But the reality is I know how to, I think, talk about it which I think is very important, but I also know how to process all of those feelings and try to make it into a positive, but it's not overnight, I'll tell you that much. You mentioned the headaches that you still have, um, the prescription drugs and alcohol that you were using to treat it when you were still you know, in the throes of it. Um, is there a fear of some of the longer-lasting effects and, and of having CTE, of, of seeing Junior Seau and others? Because we so associate that with football, but obviously as you and the Think Taylor Foundation and everything you're doing with the soccer side of things, it's just as prevalent of an issue there. Does that plague you the way that I hear from former football players? Uh, not really, because I think it's a, wa- it's a waste of energy for me. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and say the thoughts haven't crossed my mind. Absolutely, Sarah. But, you know, there's certain – I want to write a book uh, and be an example that you can have post-concussion syndrome and you can live, you can survive. And that's why I'm doing all of the therapies and trying to find the answers and actually uh, being okay enough that I can travel 200-plus days for ESPN and cover and work and do stuff. You've got to make sacrifices and do stuff. But, no, I'm not going to be that guy um, or woman. But, Sarah, the conversation needs to change because if we really believe in our hearts that this is just an American football, gridiron football problem, we're out of our minds. We're literally out of our minds. We've got cyclists at Stanford getting concussions and then taking their lives. It, it, right. the, it, the reason why Think Taylor and I went after soccer, Sarah, is because of the women, because of girls, because we why, – why are we only talking about the NFL? There's no women playing in the NFL. What are we doing? 
Right. Like, that makes no sense. If we're going to honestly educate and bring awareness, it's to the 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds, which is girls and boys. It's not one or the other. And girls right. need as much, if not more, attention because of certain genetic differences and, and hormones and whatever. We, I'm not going to play, you know, play doctor here, but the reality is the girls need as much, if not more, information and awareness. And look at the World Cup finals, Sarah. Like, if FIFA actually cared and addressed it, we could make massive, massive strides in changing the sport, but not having players quit the sport, changing the sport for the better. But the reality is FIFA doesn't care about it. So, yeah, it's 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 a topic I'm very passionate about because I think that's the whole reason why I had the success I had in only six years in Major League Soccer, and then boom, fall and flat on your face, no pun intended, and now how do you react and do you tell that story? The fact that I told the story, I'm helping more people now than I ever would have scoring hat-tricks or scoring goals there. Then you're just another athlete. Yeah, so you mentioned that the long-lasting effects are not being able to do the things you used to, and I don't know the extent of that, but... um, it's a really interesting topic for me because, you know, what it is to be a former athlete is so different for different people. There are former athletes like Scotty Pippen, who looks like he could probably go out and still play 48 minutes of basketball. Easily. And right. Um, He'd have a double double right now. Right. For right. The majority like, of the NBA. Now, granted, that's an indictment on the NBA being half of the teams are crap, but carry on. <laughs> um, but yeah, there are guys like that where, and I don't know why, why, you know, uh, he he popped into my mind, but there's a, a bunch of people, and they're able to be athletes and for for the entirety of their lives. And then there are people who, and and that's why I will never make fun of a former athlete who gets bigger because we have no idea what what's going on, right? We know people who can't make it up the stairs, and yet somehow people expect them to to look like they did at their peak shape for the entirety of their lives as they're struggling to just do everyday stuff. I'm still in physical therapy for tearing my Achilles. It created a whole jacked up kinetic chain. I'm not allowed to run, haven't been allowed to run for five years. And it sucks because so much of who I was and my identity was always sports. And if not competing for real, at least being able to go out and flag football and and softball and volleyball and destroy everyone. And I can't do that. I can't do it. I'm not physically able to. And it absolutely kills me. So for you to go from literally professional level to dealing with the results of that. And now it sounds like you're still having to deal with it. What does it mean for you and your identity as an athlete? Yeah, it's a tough one, Sarah. And by the way, I saw, didn't you post a picture on, on social on Instagram, like the difference in your legs? Yeah. And your definition? Yeah. yeah. Like how creepy was that photo? Initially, I it thought, looked like my like, arm. Yeah, it's really gross. Yeah. I was like, hold, like in, in no one really knows that, you know, athletes know that in, you know, my brother took on the same wavelength as you, my brother had two ACLs. Uh, within 13 months, and that's why his professional career ended. But he's, what is he, 34, 35, uh, going to turn 36 and most likely would need a knee replacement. He can't do oh. anything because one of those ACLs was on a sprinkler head. It, it, it changes you. The Again, I'm going to play a little bit of a doctor, but, Sarah, this is kind of how I fought through it and understood it and why depression is a huge aspect of certain athletes, uh, of most of us, when you're done, you lose the endorphin. You actually lose the biochemical uh, a process of your brain, of that endorphin being released. That's a huge part of it. Like, so much of people were like, oh, Taylor, you're depressed because you're not on billboards, or you're not on that. I'm like, no, 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 I'm actually depressed because something's off. So I finally was like, there's got to be a reason why. 
And then you go meet neurologists and brain people like that have studied this for their lives. And they're like, well, no, you, you had an endorphin since you were seven. Right. You haven't gone for a run or gotten your heart rate over a certain part for the last five to six years, Taylor. That, that's, so, Sarah, it's a huge part of that that needs to be explained to athletes because an athlete like yourself doesn't matter the level. If you're told there is a reason, well, guess what normally we do? All right, well, let's find a way to get that back, right? So you've got to find ways to find that. It, my identity never was – my identity was always an athlete, and quite honestly, Sarah, I still am. I'm a de- right. degenerate golfer, golfer right? <laughs> so that's never left me, right? So I'm still an athlete. My my hardest part was trying to un- – is there an end? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel to feel better? Right. That was always mine. Once I heard from neurologists, Taylor, you can't play again if you want to try to have a normal life. I didn't care about ever kicking a soccer ball again in my life, ever. But what hasn't been explained to people and don't and people don't understand is like, well, no, how do I become an athlete? Like, I, how can I run? How can I ride a bike? How can right. I do stuff? So that's part of why... I'm so outspoken on this because it's not a black and white issue. This injury of all the injuries, and listen, yours is an injury. Granted, they fixed it. Great. But you still have you still have byproducts of that surgery and that injury. It's not it's just injuries are not black and white and I think that's why mental I think mental health is a huge part of our progression as a society, but especially in sports because Sarah, my word, you know this better than anyone. We're all we're we're all gonna screw loose a little bit to become an athlete because you fight through certain things that normal mm-hmm. people would be like, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And then it, and then it it changes, and we've seen at the highest level from like Michael Jordan trying to figure out how to replace it to just the average person who isn't able to be active the way that they were their whole lives. How you can find whatever it is that you need for you. It's golf. For me, it's like this combination of, you know, power yoga where I'm trying new moves all the time. At least feels like I'm accomplishing and achieving and moving on to something else when I can't do other stuff. Um, especially yeah. you're doing power yoga as well, though. Like, see, to me, that's a massive accomplishment to me, Sarah, because you took that Achilles injury and said, no, no, the Achilles injury isn't going to work. It's not going to work. <laughs> I'm going to do this. Right, right. Like, it is. It's a massive it's a massive accomplishment because a lot of people who have said no and just said, I'm not doing anything, you've accommodated, which is part of what I'm saying. When athletes know what the answer is, a majority of us are like, all right, good, we'll find another way. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the, the foundation and the concussion studies are obviously a massive importance to you. What's the next step? I, I think I heard you on Golik and Wingo the other day say you presented this proposal to soccer to try to get them to take it seriously. They kind of rebuffed you. And then a couple years later came back and said, hey, do you have that thing that you wrote up? Yep. So uh, are you in the works with them on discussing that? Like, What are the next steps or are there next steps beyond the foundation work? Well, it was the 2014 World Cup final, and Christoph Kramer for Germany got a nasty concussion, looked at his captain, Bastian Schweinsteiger, who plays for your Chicago Fire and MLS, mm-hmm. and says to him, the score is 5-5. It was, what was it, 20 minutes in the game, 0-0. World, World Cup final. And about three mm. weeks afterwards, FIFA announces that it was handled completely perfect. Now, wow. every neurologist in the world... Every neurologist will unanimously, which is almost impossible for any group of doctors to agree on one single thing. 
unanimously said that the minimum assessment time slot to assess a head injury seven minutes. Christoph Kramer was under three minutes, and FIFA announces it was perfect by their medicals. And, and at that medical, time, was it public that he had no idea what the score was? Were they announcing yeah. that with the public knowing that he was completely out of it? Completely out of it. And mm. even the so, anyways, I go on ESPN. I go on this huge discussion about blah, just whatever. You've heard me say it a thousand times. And I go through, well, actually, FIFA could just change this couple of things. Well, I said, you know what, I'm going to write it down, just general topics, and send it to someone I knew on the medical board. Never heard back. I hear back 2016, or right after the 16 euros, because there's another concussion, saying, hey, do you have that? So I'm like, whoa, whoa, what, what? Meanwhile, Sarah, think of this. Every English team is publicly saying, we're fine, we're fine, we're fine. Privately, I'm getting emails from trainers, from doctors, mm. saying, hey, what do you think about this? Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is not to say, hey, I'm, it's just because I'm open to progressive thinking. Change the game. Like, right. change the game. It, it, people go, well, heading has to be in the game. Really? Messi hasn't headed a ball his entire life, and he's the best player we've ever seen. So you can't tell me the rest of our youth can't do that. So oh, from 2012 to 2015, Sarah, I went around all over the world. Anytime I was there, I was like, I'm going to go watch the kids play. None of the kids are heading a ball until they go to practice. So I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. If human nature is these kids don't want to head a ball, why are, why, why are we heading the ball? Right. It actually it started to become to me, well, that's an uneducated coach. Because the best coaches in the world, they're not heading the ball that much at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. So the, the, it's a long way of saying that I've researched that if, if you educate the athlete and change it, the sport actually doesn't need to change. The problem is FIFA does not want to address it. They don't right. even want to look at it, whether it's Kelly O'Hara in the World Cup, Women's World Cup final. She's allowed back on the field? No. Sarah, you, can, you need to have a head injury sub at the professional game because then that trickles down to all levels because then you're addressing the topic. But FIFA won't. FIFA allowed a player from Morocco in the 2018 World Cup play with a helmet on when he was completely unconscious three days before that. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It, just, it's, it is negligence at the highest level, and the problem is there's gonna be, someone's going to die in the field. And then what are we going to do? Everyone's going to call me and go, hey, do another rant. It's like, what's the point? So to answer yeah. your question, Sarah, I'm not in touch with FIFA anymore. It's pointless. It doesn't go anywhere. And so if I can make changes with the U.S. Soccer Federation, MLS, USL, which is the second division uh, on the men's side here in the United States, they're actually really going after a head injury sub for 2020. That, to me, is progress, and that means I'm actually doing something instead of just writing an email saying, hey, I hope someone at FIFA reads this. Maybe I should send it in a brown envelope. (laughs) That makes sense, though. If you have a head injury sub and then the player is allowed to come back in after the requisite time where they've actually been tested, because otherwise it's it's just like NFL, except for it's even more egregious because they wouldn't be, be able to come back in, right? In the NFL, you don't want to lose your quarterback or whoever it is for a stretch of play, so you just kind of, you know, the, the player lies and the, and the doctor's lie and everybody else, and in soccer it's worse because you don't want to lose them for a whole and game. You and you, saw, you only have three subs, Sarah, so yeah. now you're putting the coach and the player in a spot right. that uh, he or she doesn't need to be in. Yeah. Um, well, you know, keep at it. I, it, it is fascinating how um, 
it can it can require people with a vested interest in the sport to care enough about the people playing it to change it even if it feels like it might be a detriment to the sport in the moment because long term it might kill it right i mean we we know that with the nfl i don't yeah. it's so big right now it's hard to imagine but people said the same thing about boxing and there's certainly elements of of what we're seeing in, at the youth level for football that are already showing if you if you try to cover it up instead of caring and changing it actually long term effects might uh, be worse for the sport. Of course, the people who are currently profiting from it are more likely interested in what it means for them right now in their lifespan and the amount of money they can make, unfortunately. The other part, too, Sarah, is at least no one can say they're not educated or aware now. Like, you know, yeah. the, the NFL players, 60s, 70s, and 80s, I, that's actually a fair argument. I'm not sure they fully knew. No one right. can say that now. Yeah, that's so true. And that's a big part of it is uh, the sort of feigned ignorance isn't going to really fly anymore. We'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. And that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. Before I let you go, you have to do the thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right, the Spanish Inquisition, the questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Bora Bora. No, it's an, uh, it's an album if you got stuck on a desert island. <laughs> <laughs> but Bora Bora sounds nice. I'll have to check it By out. By the way, I've had too many concussions. Bora Bora. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a really good one. You are um, Dr. Dre, The Chronic. Ooh, that's a good one. My husband has, uh, uh, when he was still in a practice of hiring people when he worked at a different company, he would always figure out whether they seemed old enough or, or young enough based on whether they were born before The Chronic came out. And now he's like... <laughs> Now he's like, I'm getting so old that, like, I, I'm, I, you know, there's, like, I'm Honestly, closer to right people's away, parents than the kids. Was, Sarah, my first thought was Dr. Dre the Chronic or, Snoo- or, or Doggy Style. Like, it's literally, yeah. th- those are that important to me. Yes, of course, of course. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Uh, amnesia. <laughs> Literal, I, I, I hope not. I, I hope really you mean uh, your ability to... <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, I would say amnesia. No, literal and figurative. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Uh, biggest failure is not representing the United States at the World Cup. That was easily my biggest failure. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight other than being punched on a field? No, no. Really? I, I, as you will find this very surprising, I fight with words. And then I'm the guy that, like, starts the fight and runs as fast as he can the other way. <laughs> that sounds familiar. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? 
Oh, man, that is such a good one. Brooks Kepka. Ah, okay. You just you want to be a beefy, excellent golfer. Uh, yeah, I just want to be the guy that plays on the PGA Tour where everyone's like, oh, he only wants to win majors. <laughs> <laughs> As if it's a bad thing, right? <laughs> exactly. I love how we're like, he doesn't show up on the, uh, on the you know, the tournaments that don't matter. Oh, okay. Yeah, that seems like a good plan, if yeah. you ask me. <laughs> um, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? That's a really good one. Um, nine out of ten times my embarrassment, embarrassment comes from my mouth. So I would say that when you are in a room telling a really good embarrassing story about someone else thinking they're not in the room and that Ooh. person was in the room and then you know you really embarrassed them when you know you're <laughs> going to get over it because, like I said earlier, I'm – I have very good amnesia. Uh, that's the that's happened to me probably four or five times where it I want to crawl into a hole for like five minutes. Yeah, it's like a com- combination of embarrassment and shame, which is a terrible combo. Oh, it's a brutal combo. <laughs> like I don't care combo. if I'm embarrassed, but when you know you embarrass someone else yeah. and they can't handle it the way you can, then you're like, oh, you're just an ass. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number seven. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Oh, every single day, I still want to make sure that I am not self-absorbed. And I think mm. the hardest thing for me at times uh, is being so self-absorbed that you're not recognizing the people in and around you and making sure they're appreciated. I, I just feel like that's one of the things that I I will always have to work on, and, and I work on to this day, but I've for instance, I just did a podcast with you, and I talked about myself for an hour. So I'll replay it a thousand <laughs> times. I'm just kidding. Uh, Sarah, self-absorption is a hard one for me. It is, and it's interesting. I, I sometimes have brought this up on the podcast that it, it's, it can be difficult when the things that make you great at your job are not necessarily the things that are the best for the rest of your everyday life. Like Max Kellerman has famously said that his wife is like, you, you talk too much. Like you're so used to filling up hours of television time <laughs> that you're just like, just stop doing the, the lecturing and the, and the talking like you're on a TV show to me at home. And, um, there is a part of our job is like, everybody should hear my opinion. And I'm very yeah. like, right, everyone needs to know what I think about everything. And then maybe not so much in everyday life. It's no, difficult. that's a great point. Self-absorption, listening, you know, those two things go hand in hand for me. And, and more often than not, I'm just, I want to say enough about you. How do you like my haircut? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, number eight, if you could play commish for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Oh wow, that's a good one. So, commission of all sports or, or commission of, of life? life. Commission of life. Oh, uh, can we can we can we ever get to a point where we're not having to point the fingers at other people, other religions? Uh, can can we just ever get to a point where the equality is a given and not actually something we have to still fight for? Oh, I love that one. That's a great it's just, one. It's honestly, I and I, I mean this out of complete respect. It's so exhausting because I can't believe we're still arguing about certain things. We are like really, like yeah. we can't just be like let let's move. Like there's bigger fish to fry if we actually just treated everyone on the equal level. Maybe I'm wrong, but maybe no, no, no. I think you know? that you're right, and I think it would solve a million problems if everyone just woke up tomorrow and thought, "Wow, everybody is born and they're a human being." 
and they yeah, all want the same things and they experience the same things and they love the same things. And let's just go from there. I, it's amazing, honestly, but that, that would, I would do that, you know, at 11:20 AM Eastern time on July 8th, if I could. All right. You're hired. You're, you're <laughs> I appointed you commission. Make it happen. Um, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, I was scared about five years ago, uh, with hardcore vertigo and brain symptoms that I didn't have an answer to. Mm. And so for about six weeks, I thought this was really going to be what the rest of my life is going to be. That that was, uh, I was in a dark place about five years ago that I hope I'll never see again. Was it a medical treatment? Was it time? What, what, what caused that to not be your everyday? Um, med- uh, treatments, finding answers, uh, listening to what my body, what I was doing and actually, you know, being a man of my word and trying to change certain things and, and actually finding medical treatments. And it was a collective, it was a collection. It wasn't one single thing, but Sarah vertigo, uh, if there's any listeners out there, please tweet me. Um, vertigo is insane. You are, you are out of control. And when you're out of control, that is a helpless feeling. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Not necessarily a phrase, but three words. Three words. Um... Wow, that's a good one. Loyal. Hardworking. And fun. Those are good ones. Uh, we have a bonus listener question. Who would play you in the movie of your life? That's a great question. <laughs> um, I mean, in the movie of my life, I, I'd have, listen, okay, I can't believe I'm doing this because the public now, <laughs> my nickname was Stifler for a <laughs> long time, okay? <laughs> and I know you're laughing because you're like, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. But I well, was thinking. frat boy. It, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I just feel like it would be like Ryan Gosling. Ah. So you want you want one that has a, a sort of more depth and, and uh, in, interior vibes yeah. coming out than Stifler, who's more of a... Yes. <laughs> what you see is what you get. Uh, honestly, in all seriousness, Sarah, there's, there's a lot of truth. And I, this is actually like a real personal moment for me right now on your podcast. Like, yeah, that's actually the perfect way to describe why I would want Ryan Gosling, because there's more to me than just <laughs> a pretty face. Just stiffler. <laughs> you wanted to say it. You wanted to say there's more to me than a pretty face. <laughs> and you went with Stifler. I'll take it. <laughs> um, and finally, who should I have on this podcast? Who's interesting? Who should I talk to? Oh, this is really good. Well, for I don't know the list. You've had, you've had a pretty good list here. Yeah. So I think what we're going to do is when you post this podcast, I am going to post who should be on your next podcast on Twitter because I really want to think this through for you. All right, I appreciate that. And then maybe somebody, you'll be able to use yeah, your influence to convince him to come on. Yeah, you actually ask real questions, which I appreciate. <laughs> it's actually interesting. <laughs> Good, Do I I'm charge glad. you a fee for this or no? Yeah. Well, I like to tell people it's kind of like it, it verges on therapy at times. I think in another it, life I yeah, want to be like, a therapist or something. <laughs> it's weird. Like I'm sitting here, I've got a tear in my eye, I'm naked, and it's like I don't know what just happened. <laughs> 
I'm picturing it right now. It's Ryan Gosling, uh, <laughs> Circa La La Land. So it's a little vintage looking. It's nice. Yeah, but Stifler's mom's good. downstairs making yeah, breakfast. That's exactly. the problem. <laughs> uh, this is awesome, Taylor. Thank you so much. No, I hope you and I get to work together again because uh, this, yeah, is, for this sure. is a lot of fun. Well, that's what she said. Be sure to check out another great podcast in the Levitard and Friends podcast network, Marty Smith's America. On this week's episode, Marty explains how he hurt his foot at a liquor store, went to the hospital, and then went back to the liquor store on his way home to get his beer. You can download and subscribe to Marty Smith's America on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me, and I fix it. I don't know if I can fix it this time, because today... It's people who fight at sporting events. And I am actually definitely thinking about you, Cubs and White Sox ladies who got caught on camera flailing at each other with T-Rex arms, barely hitting each other, but then pulling each other's hair and sitting on top of each other and having to get separated at the Cubs-White Sox game. This got sent to me at least a dozen times. And people were asking what the hell is wrong with Chicago fans and dragging me into it. It was even a story in the Daily Mail in the UK. Your idiocy... And your stupidity made it all the way across the pond, and I'm sure it caused at least a few Brits with delicate sensibilities to assume that that's how all of Chicago fans are, maybe even all American fans are. And we're already dealing with all the BS from the Women's World Cup, where people think that we're arrogant and we celebrate too much and we're morons. And unfortunately, we are morons. You guys are morons. You get overserved at the game and you beat the crap out of each other. You probably don't even remember what you're fighting about. I can almost guarantee that if you interviewed all of those people, first of all, probably couldn't make a sentence. And secondly, they wouldn't even remember what they were fighting about. Because it's stupid. Because you don't need to fight people at sporting events. Now, I know you're not the only morons. You're just the female morons that people get more excited about because dudes are always fighting each other. And you're just the latest morons to get caught on tape and go viral. So this isn't just about you. It's about all of you. Because one day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. You're supposed to be going to a sporting event to have fun. Maybe grab some food. Maybe have an alcoholic beverage. But that's not required. You can go to a sporting event and not be hammered. You can actually remember what you were watching. You can engage with people from the other team in fun, lighthearted trash talking. You can even maybe, you know, cheer loudly for your team, boo the other, talk some trash. But why you're fighting each other and potentially causing death, as we've seen in some cases, permanent brain damage in others, or just idiotic videos where you look like a dumbass is beyond me. Get a hold of your lives. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Don't fight each other at sporting events. Don't pull hair like bitches and don't get caught and then send around the world to make us look stupid. There, I fixed it. Probably not. It's probably not fixed. You guys can't do that because you're morons. No listener dilemma this week. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and leave the dilemma in your review for That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 